today is the beginning of Lent, as Josh said. And for some of you, you come from traditions where you, you come from church backgrounds where you haven't practiced Lent or observed Lent. And a number of you have said to me things like, what is Lent? Like, I thought, like, I, I thought that was only a Catholic thing, and I, I didn't know you were a Catholic church. Um, uh, and that's, or like, I, we didn't come from a place where we practice Lent. What is that? And um, so I just want to give a little bit of pers- help for you on that level. First of all, Wednesday, on Wednesdays, we have these Lenten services where we meet with other churches. Um, and we go uh, to the other churches on Wednesday nights. And one pastor from one church will go to the and, and teach at the other uh, church. And that's a, a pretty special thing that's been in place for a long time in East Coventry with the Union of Churches in East Coventry. And some of those churches uh, we're not completely theologically aligned with or anything like that. But we all believe in the gospel and we believe um, in uh, the centrality of Christ and the centrality of the cross. And so when it comes to uh, uh, Easter and Lent, man, it's a great time to be able to go after that together. Um, and so it's been really a, a blessing for us. It's one of the things that Josh and I are uh, stepping into a church where that was already in place is a really cool thing. You know, with Netzer, we've, there's been a whole bunch of other church connections, but that's one that was already in existence, and that's been really cool. Anyway, Wednesday, we were at Parker Ford Baptist, and I was teaching um, there, and that the teaching was on an introduction to Lent. It was kind of explaining Lent and talking from Scripture about what that's all about because the Scriptures don't specify Lent any more than they specify, say, the Trinity. Um, you never hear the word Trinity. In, you never hear uh, journaling in the scriptures. You never hear, you know, prayer walking. You never hear all sorts of things that we do as churches that are applications of principles that are in scripture. And Lent is one of the longest standing applications of the spiritual uh, uh, ideas and disciplines and thoughts that are described in scripture. Anyway, before I got up to speak, I took out my phone and I pushed record so that I could record it, so I could post it on the web, so that you could listen to it if you weren't there, because uh, some of you, most of you weren't there, and the, and the uh, there was a snowstorm that night, and the few, the proud, the brave, uh, made it out there, and uh, it was great that you were there, and uh, so I recorded it, because there's been a number of questions around Lent, and so I thought you might want to listen to it, so it's going to be online, I'm going to get it to Matt, um, and it's a short sermon, not just for me short. But like really short, like it's actually like between 15 and 20 minutes, something like that. Uh, and so uh, it, it's an introduction to Lent. And if you want to learn more about that, the cliff notes are this. I'm not going to give you enough cliff notes to satisfy you, just enough to tease you. Okay, but the idea is when Jesus says, Come, if anyone wants to be my disciple, what does he have to do? He has to deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He who wants to gain his life will lose it, but whoever loses it for my sake shall find it. And Paul's response in Philippians is, yeah, I do want to know Christ, and so much so that I don't want to just know him in the power of his resurrection. I also want to know him in the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection. And the the practice of Lent is a practice of self-denial. It's a practice of living with Christ in his sufferings, taking up our cross and following him. And we might say, well, there's enough pain in our life. We don't need more. Well, that's not what Jesus thought because Jesus took 40 days of intentional pain of going into the wilderness. And Paul spent time in the wilderness in pain. 
And, and there's an understanding across Scripture that we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. It's not only responding appropriately to the pain in our lives, it's intentionally pursuing self-denial and pain, not for the sake of pain, but for the, for the ability to understand the suffering of Christ, disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness. When pain comes into our life, then we have the ability to experience Christ through that pain instead of just asking for him to change our pain. And Lent is the practice of as we journey with Christ toward the cross, we're not just giving up sugar and candy so that we can drop a few pounds during Lent. The idea is self-denial and engaging the suffering of Christ, experiencing with him. It's like if a friend's going through pain, you grieve with them through the pain, and it builds the bond. And we understand much of Christ's life was not one of creature comforts that we enjoy in America. Much of life for Christ was one that was in suffering and pain. And he says that as if we want to find him, we find him in the least of these. And that is the practice of Lent. Understand more about that by listening to that message, okay? <clears throat> now, we have all sorts of things. And if you look at, there, there's handouts around what happens during Lent. We kind of set up a bunch of things to help all of us journey through that, like the Wednesday night services. We also have uh, the journey to the cross that gets set up here, which is a prayer event we do here, kind of their experiential journey of prayer through the building where there's different stages set up to help us experience that. We have love feast and Holy Communion here, which is the kind of reenactment of, of the evening of the night before he was betrayed and uh, including full on with foot washing and all of that, you know. And uh, this is, uh, the, Jesus says, as I have washed your feet, so also you should wash one another's feet. That's just straight Jesus. I mean, you know, we listen to him about the part of the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup, but he also said, wash one another's feet. We just take that pretty literally. I mean, there's also a metaphor in there, um, and there's a lot of metaphor um, in a lot of the things that Jesus says, like there's deeper meaning to it, but we also feel like practical application of that really helps you understand the metaphor a whole lot more, you know? <laughs> and it does. When you're washing someone's foot, it's a little awkward, you know? <laughs> and uh, it helps us kind of understand what service is really all about. Um, and, and, you know, there's the Tenebrae service on, on Good Friday, which is a really cool thing. Um, that's a, a service of darkness where we understand the layers of darkness that Christ went through. And, of course, there's Easter. Now, the thing is, when, um, when we got up at the beginning of Advent, I said, uh, I got up at the very first Sunday in Advent, and I said, is it too early to say Merry Christmas? And everyone said, yes, it's too early to say Merry Christmas. And I was like, forget you guys, Merry Christmas. You know, and I had this kind of banter around it. But, you know, there's no standing up at the beginning of Lent and saying Happy Easter. There's no way. We've got to walk through it. We've got to walk through it. You don't rush to Easter, you know. You don't rush to it. We have to suffer in order to know the fellowship of the resurrection, the joy of the resurrection, we have to share in the fellowship of suffering. And there's no way to understand the resurrection life unless you also understand the persecution and the death of Christ. And the journey of Lent is taking time out of our lives to experience that. And it's difficult. In America, that's a, a much more difficult thing because we don't not understand the full resurrection life because we live with the creature comforts of life, which keep us from both the full resurrection life, but also tend to keep us from understanding the suffering of Christ. And so Lent is that intentional journey to walk it out. And that's what we're doing. So the other thing that we do during Lent is we have uh, a sermon series, uh, typically, that, that walks us through. And this year, our sermon series is the Beautiful Red Letters. And this kind of was, I was working on this in like October 
um, I had this moment where I was in my own kind of time studying the words and was just struck by, uh, by something that we'll get into in Easter, the conclusion of the series, and I'll tell you how it really, uh, what struck me so hard about Easter and the red letters and all of that. But, uh, but the idea is these are the seven phrases that Christ spoke from the cross. And of course, if you have a red letter Bible, they're written in red. And, uh, and the way I look at, at these phrases are that they are, um, these phrases that are written in red letters, to me, when you see them on the black and white pages of Scripture, as you hear about Christ's death, and then you see the red, the red it, it, it's just like the blood's just dripping off of him onto the pages, you know? And here on the black and white, you just see the blood of Christ coming out into these phrases on the, on the text. And uh, every, every time we do a Lenten sermon series, we do something creative uh, to kind of help express the series. And uh, that's still under construction, um, so it hasn't been fully released. You'll see that a little more fully next week. Uh, Matt has uh, got a full plate, and he's working on that. And this will be uh, these phrases you'll see each week, the phrases from the cross, okay? Um, and these things are packed so tight with meaning. And so each week throughout Lent, we're going to take one of those phrases and we're going to unpack it. And then you'll see how that's expressed on our uh, kind of piece of art uh, throughout the series. So today uh, we look at Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And um, that's where we're going today. The uh, text is from Luke chapter 23. So you can turn there with me. If you have your Bible, if you don't have a Bible, remember the red Bibles in the back are free. If you don't have one, grab one, keep it, take it. It's our gift to you. If you do have a Bible, bring it, read along. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32. It's just a couple verses here going down to verse 37. And you can stand with me as we honor God's word, please. (coughs) Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they were crucified. They crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself if he is Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. May God add rich blessing to the reading of his word. You guys can have a seat and join me in prayer, please. (coughs) Jesus, we know that um, these were not just random utterances that you spoke from the cross. There's nothing that you did that was unintentional. You knew exactly what you were doing. You're the only person who seems to always know exactly what you're doing, why you're doing it, and you do it with great intention. And so often we blow past phrases in, in your words and, and in your scripture, and we just kind of think like that's just what you felt like saying in the moment, and we fail to see the depth of what's actually happening. And so, God, we just ask that today as we read these incredible words that came off of your lips as, as you hung there for us that, God, you would help us to understand them more fully, to process them, and they would wash over us, and they would change us. In the name of Jesus, amen. 
Throughout the history of the church, you know, forgiveness has been a hallmark of the Christian faith. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that Christians have always been forgiving. As a matter of fact, sometimes Christians have been the antithesis of forgiveness. But it has usually been understood across church history that Christians are supposed to be forgiving. That a huge hallmark of the Christian faith... A monstrous characteristic, a primary characteristic of Christian living should be that of forgiveness. And that's been understood. Now, something's happened in recent years in America where we've kind of lost the theology of forgiveness. Our theology of forgiveness has been limited largely to Christ forgiving us. And we're really into that side of things in in the U.S. about understanding that Christ has forgiven us. And that's really important. You know, obviously that's where it all starts and that's what we're talking about today. But the understanding of of forgiveness moving beyond just us receiving the forgiveness of God and watching the forgiveness move forward in our lives and seeing the commands of Scripture to forgive, that's something that's really gone missing a lot. What, What I find is oftentimes if there's a small group or a Bible study or two friends getting together and they talk about what's going on at work or they talk about what's happening in their family and they're hurt by something that's happening, They try to comfort one another and take care of one another. But rarely what we see these days is the understanding that says, oh, there's pain in your life. Now there's opportunity to express the forgiveness of Jesus and an encouragement to go with the power of God and invest with forgiveness. That's a theology of forgiveness. That's a mission of forgiveness. But that's been understood throughout church history to be a big hallmark of the Christian faith. In our day and age, We know, of course, that forgiveness, we do know if we stop to think about it, how important forgiveness actually is and how much it's going missing. How many of you kind of like commute on 422 or on Route 100 or whatever, back and forth to pharmaceuticals, and you know, you know how awesome it would be if forgiveness was actually the modus operandi of our church, of of our lives, you know, of our culture. Forgiveness would change everything in the commute, you know. But it's not just in the silly things of the commute. And they're not all that silly. I mean, sometimes they get really, really bad. And it's not only that there's violence that can happen from, from road rage. It's also that, man, we change everyone's day, every morning. When you get in the Word and you're trying to pray or you're trying to tune into Christ, and then you get on the road and you try to get to work, and by the time you get to work, you have been infected with things that are far different than an attitude of forgiveness. And it changes the course of everyone's day to a degree. Unless you're in deep spiritual warfare where you're fighting back, it has its effects on us. And in our culture, the effects are pervasive and they're much deeper than just what happens in road rage. I mean, we've seen what happened to Columbine. We've seen what happened at Virginia Tech. We saw what happened at the Nickel Mines uh, uh, school shooting. We saw what happened at Sandy Hook in Newtown just this past year. And all of that stuff starts in a moment where somewhere along the line, some child is wounded. And when they're wounded, something happens. And they don't know how to process it, and there isn't help there. And they internalize something. And they grab a hold of this pain, and, and they grow resentful. And they grow angry, and then resentful, and then ultimately bitter. And they begin to plot revenge. And something psychological begins to take place, and things aren't lined up. And there's all sorts of deception. And there's video games, and there's movies, and everything that you know help feed this sense of, like, it would feel so good if I could just unleash my anger, you know? And in the end, we see all sorts of atrocity happen. 
We tend to distance ourselves from that and think that's people who, you know, have problems who aren't on appropriate medication and haven't received the right counseling and everything. But, and, and we do recognize, we probably recognize that in that moment, there's an empowerment of evil. There's the demonic, right? It's not, this is not simply just someone who's struggling with something that's hard. This isn't just some person who's lashing back out. This is actually the empowerment of the demonic. And when we look at a situation, you can't hear about one of those school shootings and think that was just human. You know, if you're a follower of Christ, you know there's pervasive deception. There's empowerment of demonic strongholds. This is evil through and through. But we have a tendency to kind of put that on these people who are either possessed or seriously psychologically unstable and come from radically difficult situations. And while all of that might be true, we tend to distance ourselves from that. But I'll tell you this, that when I sit in a counseling session and across the table is a Christian couple who's really struggling to know how to care for each other and they're in turmoil and they've been hurt in their life, I realize the distance isn't that far. It's really not as far as we think. That the tension in our society between a kid who seems to have gone psychotic because of his pain and the tension in a relationship when two co-equal people can't figure out how to make it work because of the pain that they've experienced is the same demonic strongholds that are being empowered. It's the same divisiveness. It's the same division. And what Jesus says is this. This is, this is earlier red letters. Jesus says, you've heard it said that you should not murder. But I tell you that if you've hated someone, you've already, if you've hated your brother, you've already done what? Committed murder in your heart. And if committing murder physically we see as an empowerment of evil, well then in my heart, in my spirit, if I'm also doing this, this is continuing to empower the demonic strongholds. And so when I'm on that road and someone cuts me off and I get angry my blood pressure rises and i and i just something's happening in the spiritual world in this moment and if i can't control my anger and i speak inappropriately to to my spouse or to my kids or to my coworker or to whoever it is what i'm doing is i'm been beginning to justify the platform of the demonic who deceives us into thinking that we have rights and we have reasons to be angry And it builds the platform and it justifies a mindset of vengeance when we allow it to stew within us. We need, desperately need, a theology of forgiveness and a practice of forgiveness. We really, really need it. And enter the phrase. Now, this is what I want us to do for the rest of our time. Before we engage the rest of our time, I want you to just think with me for a second about the places where you've been hurt in your life, the places where you've struggled. And this isn't where, there's no public confession here. Don't worry. This is just you today. Um, we're not, this isn't Worship Sunday from last week where we're going to be getting up and writing something on the board. The, uh, but I want you to think through, where have I been hurt? 
You know, where, where's the pain in my life? Where's the potential bitterness and resentment? What are the struggles? What are the tensions? And that might be a, a thing from when I was a child, you know, when there was that abuse. It might be when I was abandoned, when my parents split. It might be when those kids in school did that horrific thing to me and I was bullied. It might be something a little more recent. It might have been a spouse who was unfaithful to me. It might have been a friend who betrayed me, a boss who treats me completely inappropriately, whatever it is, you know, or maybe it's something that's really fresh, you know, Maybe it's, you know, somebody just recently has done something to you and it's sitting there and you're frustrated, you know. And I, I would wager that there is probably not a person in the room who doesn't have someone who they struggle with a little bit because of something that happened, you know, somewhere along the line. That person might not even be alive anymore, but there's something there, you know, that person who you just... It's fine. It is what it is. They did what they did. I just don't really feel like hanging out with them anymore. You know? Like, it's that kind of thing. Where, like, it's good. Yeah, I forgive you. Please, leave me alone now. You know? That kind of feel. We all have something like that. Think about that. Live in that for the rest of our time here this morning. And hear the phrase to that thought. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We're going to break this thing down. That phrase has three parts to it. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we're going to look at those three parts of it. First of all, Father, okay? What is this about? Interestingly, I've always kind of pictured Jesus gets on the cross, he's hanging on the cross, and here he forgives those who are hurting him, right? But this isn't actually a statement to them, is it? That's not who he's addressing. He's not even talking to them. Who's he talking to? Yeah, his dad. God, imagine, imagine what would happen if every time we got hurt by someone, our first reaction was to go talk to God about it. Imagine how that would change everything. Can you imagine if I got hurt and if someone offended me, the very first reaction was to go and talk and process that with God. That would change everything. It would change everything. And Jesus sets this beautiful example about he gets hurt and he, runs to, and he runs to God and he goes and he talks to God. What's interesting though is when I do run to God, I run to God more like David does, who's like, God, bash them against the rocks. You know, like that's my prayer. You know, like that's what David does. You know, that's what the Psalms do, those imprecatory Psalms where he's like, you know, he gets angry. And when I do actually am, am like smart enough or wise enough in a moment or graced by God enough to actually pray about it instead of dealing with them, it tends to be an out loud processing anger session with God, which God's completely okay with. And he invites us into that. That's one of the beauties of what David does. And he shows us that it's okay to process like that with God. However, this isn't what Jesus does. That's not how he prays. What's amazing about Jesus is Jesus, he's in the midst of an unfathomable pain, unimaginable, excruciating, physical, psychological, emotional pain. We can't understand the levels of pain. And yet what happens in this moment is that Jesus goes to prayer. And when he goes to prayer, it has absolutely nothing to do with himself. He's not trying to change the circumstances. He's not trying to get rid of his pain. He's not trying to get sympathy from his father about his pain. As a matter of fact, he's completely resolved to this pain. He's not trying to get God to change the circumstances at all. 
He sat there in the garden and he went through his Lenten season. He already sat there in the wilderness and went through Lent. He went through the garden of Gethsemane and he processed with God. And now he understands as this pain is coming to him, he's actually coming to that pain. And he's engaging and embracing that pain. He understands at this point after he's processed with the Lord, this is a call on him. And he's embracing that calling and he's engaging that pain and his prayer to God is no longer change my pain and make my circumstances better. Instead, his prayer is for me. It's for you. It's for us. It's for Roman soldiers. It's for Pharisees. It's for Pilate. This is incredible prayer. And he turns to God. There's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's Jesus doing right now? What's he doing right now? Somebody tell me. He's interceding at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what he's doing. That's what the scriptures tell us. Right now he's praying. I don't even know how that makes sense when you're the son and you're also the father and you pray. I don't get all that. I can't get it. Neither can you. Don't tell me you can. I don't believe you. (laughs) If it's not a mystery, then you're too smart. Um, he sits at the right hand of the throne of God and he intercedes on our behalf. Right now, he prays for us. And in that moment, he prayed for us. Jesus says this amazing thing, the red letters before, again, that we referred to in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, they speak profoundly here. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. What's the next phrase say? And do what? Pray for those who persecute you. This is a preacher who practices what he preaches. That's what Jesus is. He's a preacher who backs up what he says. He told them, pray for those who persecute you. Very first thing he does when he hangs on that cross is he prays for them. And listen to what it says in verse 45 that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. I love this. This is it right here. He's unlocking a mystery. What is that about? Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. What does that even mean? Well, I don't know if I had just read Matthew 5 if I would know what that meant. But when I get to Luke chapter 23, and I see Jesus praying for those who are persecuting, all of a sudden, it begins to unpack what he said. You see, he's one of these preachers who leaves a whole bunch of mystery there, and then he walks it out. And if you're watching his life, you get to understand what it is he was talking about. Because here he says, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. What does that mean? Well, it means he's reflecting the image of his father. Now, here's the mystery, and this is what we were talking about, is when Jesus is his son, it, how, many, how many parents are in the room? Just give me a show of hands. I just want to see how many of our, par- our parents. Okay, so mo- most of us are parents. There's some of us who aren't. But if, if you're a parent, if your kid is old enough to interact with other kids or with teachers, have you, you've had that experience where your kid was treated inappropriately, where they were treated unjustly? How's it? How's that sit? Uh, what's that? 
I'll get him. That's it, man. Oh, man, let me at him. Man, as a parent, when I see my kid dealt with inappropriately, I'm like, I want to throw down for my kid, you know? If you're not a parent, maybe you've experienced this with a spouse or maybe you've experienced it with, a, a, you know, when, you're, when you have siblings, you can treat your, you can kick around your sibling all the time, but as soon as someone, you know how it goes, as soon as they go after your brother or sister, you're going to guns for them, you know? And if you've had a friend that's been treated inappropriately, it comes up, the hair stands up on the back of the neck, and you want to go to guns for them, right? I mean, you want to you get their back. Um, so here's the picture. Is that what this is about? Father God sees his son being treated inappropriately, and he's like winding up to smack him, and Jesus is holding him at bay. Well, there may be a little bit of that. There may be a little bit of that. But I think that it goes a little bit further than that. See, what Jesus says is, is he says, forgive those who persecute you so that you can be sons of your Father in heaven. He says, pray for those, I'm sorry, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And what does that mean? It means there's a reflection of the character of God. There's a reflection of his character of the Father when I pray for those who persecute me. In other words, this is where the Trinity is so important. The understanding of the Trinity is so important because I've had a number of people say this to me. Tim, how can you worship a God who would kill his son in order to save a bunch of morons like you and me? You know? Like you know and I know that we're messed up, right? And Jesus is supposed to be perfect and awesome. And then you have God who Josh read. He opened up our our passage with our, our time from Isaiah 53 where it says, it pleased God to crush him. And people will quote that and say, what kind of God do you worship? You know, who sacrifices his own son. And initially we might be like, how are you going to talk about God like that? You know, but at the same time, we actually have to be honest about that. If we're, if people are really processing, how can we be okay with, okay, here, over here's the serial killer and I'm going to sacrifice my kids so the serial killer can live. Is that like, why would we be okay with that? Doesn't that seem like misplaced priorities? Until we understand the Trinity. And when we understand the Trinity, we understand that Jesus and the Father are one. And this isn't only God allowing his son to go to a cross. This is God choosing to go to a cross. He gave himself up willingly. Jesus is not separate in that way. He's one and the same. This is God going to the cross. He's no, he, he didn't stop being God so he could go to the cross. You see, we can't comprehend this whole thing, but when he says that he will pray for those who persecute him, he is revealing the heart of the Father. He is a son of the Father. And what he's doing is he's holding in balance two character traits of God, both the justice and holiness of God, which says sin can't exist in my presence, and so therefore it has to be cast out. But at the same time, that there's the compassion and there's the forgiveness of God. And it's coming together and being reconciled in a conversation between God from across to heaven. And we're listening in on this internal conversation of the triune God that expresses all parts of the characteristic when the son who is on the cross holds at bay the justice and holiness of God and says, let it fall on me, forgive them. And balances the characteristics of God. 
through his prayer. And that passage that Josh read from Isaiah 53, it ends like this. It says, he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He bore the sin and he makes intercession for the transgressors. He's the priest who prays on our behalf on the cross. That's Father. Father, forgive them. Before we move on to that, <coughs> there's this story that I think I should tell here. I was going to tell it a little later on, but there's this, there's this woman who uh, a few years ago, no, it was, it was just last year. She was in a courtroom in Mississippi, and her name uh, was uh, Leslie Shepard Dome. And uh, you might have heard of her. I don't know if you remember. Um, and there was a, there was a, a, a horrific, a horrific uh, murder that took place in 2011, and it was in her home, in the family home. And a year later, she's in a courtroom, and it was her daughter who had been murdered. And there in the room is the executioner, that are, and that's, he was literally an executioner is how the whole thing went down. And here in the courtroom, she says in front of the judge that, you know, um, we don't hold any bitterness toward this man because Jesus told us to love our enemies, is what she says. To which there's kind of this like weird, like how can you actually say that, you know? And this is what her response is. This is a phenomenal response. She says, and this, this, is a, this is a picture of what's going on, a picture of what's happening in Christ on the cross, is, is that she says, I don't know how this went down, but I started to pray. And when my husband and I prayed, we were grieving in the, in the desperateness of our grief. The first prayers that came out of our mouth were for the murderer, not for ourselves, not for our daughter, but for the murderer. And it's almost like she says it with like a shrug of her shoulders. Like, how could that be? You know? And this is the power of Jesus, right? This is the power of God. The prayer, the intercession of forgiveness. This isn't just me forgiving someone. It starts initially with me going to the forgiver. Because forgiveness doesn't flow from me. Forgiveness flows from the Father. And the picture of, of the Father crushing the Son can be seen as some weird vindictive thing. You see, forgiveness flows from the Father. And Jesus prays on, to the Father on behalf of us as an intercessor and calls us to do the same, to pray for forgiveness. Now that's Father and it moves into to forgive them. And it moves from just a prayer to becoming a revolution. And let me explain how this works. <clears throat> in a world of sin, where there's pervasive evil, any good thing that happens, anything good at all, anywhere that there's love, anywhere there's redemption, anytime we're going to break into the darkness and we're going to see something good happens, it always, the entry point has to be forgiveness. Do you know that? has to be forgiveness. Because we've all been in a selfish mindset, by definition, because of sinners. We've all been offended. If we're going to get past ourselves and love someone else, in order to get there, it has to start with forgiveness. Okay, that's where it starts. That's the entry point of love and redemption into society. Now, what is it that we want when we've been hurt? Revenge. Revenge is what we want. Now, revenge or vengeance, and oftentimes we use this other word that we connect to revenge and vengeance, this word called justice. We want justice. Is what, what, revenge is when you take justice into your own hands, Right? Um, and, and we call it justice. Now, justice and revenge aren't actually the same thing, right? 
uh, because revenge is about me trying to get someone back for something they did to me. Justice, what is justice? That's when things are the way they're supposed to be and it's, it's fair and equal or whatever, you know, that sense of, of justice. Now, here's the thing though, is that obviously we know that revenge doesn't bring satisfaction to us, right? We know it doesn't actually do that. We, we love the movies that tell us that it does. We can't help it. I mean, Hollywood can sell so much based on the idea of revenge. And, but we really like it when it comes not in some dark, twisted way. We really like it when it's like some sheriff with a badge who's got the reason for revenge. You know, he's like justified in his revenge. And then it's like, yes, he got back the bad guys who killed his brother and he was able to gun them down and he did it lawfully. You know, like, and that just like satisfies everything for me because now there's justice and revenge and it's all good and it's righteous and I still got to kill him, you know, and that's the sense of like, that's what Hollywood sells all the time. But the thing is, is even true justice, do you realize that true justice doesn't bring peace in the midst of darkness? Did you know that? When you've been offended and when you've been hurt, justice doesn't heal us. Justice is important. Justice is incredible. Justice is, is, is a primary characteristic of the throne of God. It's a foundation for the throne of God. It's deeply important. And what justice can do is it can sustain peace. So once peace exists, if there's justice, then we go, grow in confidence. And we're like, oh, okay, things are going to be okay. And we grow in confidence. It satisfies fears. It takes away fear. And it, it gives us a place of security. And we can care for each other in a place of secureness. But justice does not actually, justice itself doesn't bring the healing. It doesn't change us. It doesn't, it still leaves us with a bag of pain. If I, if someone gets, yeah, you see this all the time where, where someone does something wrong, the criminal gets a, gets a, a, a ruling and it's supposed to be a just ruling. Well, okay, so it balanced justice, but the family's still sitting there with a bag of pain and emptiness. It didn't satisfy the hurt. They're glad there's still justice and that something does happen to this thing, but it doesn't actually, it doesn't actually make things okay. It doesn't bring peace. And what we think is that revenge has this ability to somehow satisfy me. And then we go and we experience the revenge. And if we experience the revenge and if we lash out and someone says something mean to me and I say something mean back to him, for a second it feels really good. And then you know what happens after that? Guilt and shame. And guilt and shame are kissing cousins with bitterness and resentment. Both of them are tied together by this ligament that's called control and pride. When someone has hurt me, but I'm in control and I have pride, then it's my job to get them back. And then when I do, I'm over here in control of my own life, and so therefore I have to be my own righteousness, and I realize that I'm not, and so therefore I have guilt and shame. Because I'm the one responsible for my own righteousness and I'm the one responsible for my own justice. And they're kissing cousins. And one leads to the other and the other leads to the other. And we'll get back to how that affects us in deep ways, in deep and profound ways. But in the middle of this place, this place of sin, this world where we're contaminated, there's only one thing that can actually bring the healing and it's not justice. What can bring healing? Say it. 
You got to say it. Everybody's got to say it. Forgiveness. Thank you. We got to say it. We need to say it out loud because we need to believe it. And it's hard to believe it. It's a very, very hard concept to believe. Somebody uh, told me in between services, actually, my, my dad came up to me um, after, right before the service and said, hey, you ever hear the definition of uh, unforgiveness? It's drinking poison and expecting it to kill somebody else. You know, that's the, that's the definition of unforgiveness, you know? And that's, that's how it works, you know? Isn't that how it works? Revenge kills us. Bitterness and resentment kills us. Unforgiveness kills us. It doesn't get anyone else. But forgiveness, on the other hand, is actually the game changer. And what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is me laying down my rights. Forgiveness is me laying down my pride. Forgiveness is me laying down my own control for the sake of the restoration, the reconciliation. Because the peace is actually found when we come back together in right relationship. That's where peace is found. And we're not going to get there by justice. Just because someone made it fair doesn't mean that we're going to be okay anymore. Have you ever had it where you've had that breach in a relationship with someone and you finally got it all dealt with and they did things the right way now and this person did it the right way, but it's still not actually okay, you know? And the reason it's not okay is because there hasn't been true forgiveness. Because no one decided to lay down their life for the other person. And so therefore it didn't go okay. So first Jesus prays as an intercessor, but then Jesus lays down his life on our behalf. This is my favorite thing about this message right here. Jesus, his first phrase from the cross is about forgiveness. And this is why this is so incredible to me, because Jesus has told them, he says, tear down this temple, and in three days I'm going to build it up. He's the temple of the living God. The fullness of God's deity dwells in him, as Colossians tells us. He is the temple of the living God. He's the presence of the living God. He's the essence of the living God. And he's being nailed to the cross. He is the temple. He's the place where Israel can connect with their God, where the entirety of humanity can be restored with God. He is the container for the living God where we can connect. He's the temple. But we're killing the temple. We're crushing the temple. Okay? And so that's what what we're doing. But Jesus does this incredible thing as our high priest. As I, if you picture in the Old Testament, a high priest coming to the temple, what's his job? His job is to offer prayers on behalf of the nation and to connect with God. He's the one who intercedes, who goes between the nation and God. That's his job, the job of the priest. Now, when he comes up to the temple, the, the, there's a long journey There's like a Lenten journey. There's this long journey that gets you from outside the temple into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is, where the relationship can have connection. But there's all sorts of things that have to happen in that journey. And there's all these articles of furniture that you walk through in the, in, the, in the tabernacle or in the temple. And each one has something that they're supposed to do in order to, to go through this process of reconciliation. And the first one, when you come walking into the temple, is this big, nasty, smelly thing that's got blood all over it, that has horns coming out of it. And what's it called? Yeah, the brazen altar. An altar. And what happens on that altar? Sacrifice. Why does that sacrifice take place? That is atonement. Yeah, propitiation for our sins. Shed blood for our sins. Forgiveness. Listen, Jesus gets on the cross and here he is, the high priest. And he's coming to the altar 
And the first thing he says is a mission statement. This is a prayer to his father, but it's a statement of purpose. See, everyone thinks that they're in control. Everyone does. Pilate tries to wash his hands to pretend he's not in control, but he knows he actually is in control in a weird sense, but he's not really in control. The religious leaders definitely believe that they're in control and they're getting done what they need to do in order to maintain control. Judas thinks that he's in control, so he's getting 40 pieces of silver. Peter thinks that he can still save Jesus, so he's going to lie his way to still hide so that he can eventually get a hold and save Jesus. And everyone thinks that they're in control. Everyone thinks that they're the ones in control. And Jesus stands up on a cross that he's put there by everyone else. And in this moment, he tells us that we are not in control. He says, I am the high priest who is coming with a sacrifice to offer on an altar by the power of the living God of whom I am. I will offer the forgiveness. I will offer the sacrifice. I will offer the intercession because I am the one with the power and I have intention in this moment and I am not reacting to what you're doing. I am stepping in with full engagement into this moment of pain in order to forgive these people. Father, forgive them. Let the forgiveness begin, sacrifice on the altar so that we can bring reconciliation. And ultimately, we will get to the tearing of the veil of the Holy of Holies and we will say it is finished. But for now, let it begin. The purpose statement of Jesus. Father, forgive them. And with this, Jesus starts a revolution. Realize this? It doesn't end here. This is the beginning. Unless a kernel, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, you you don't have new life springing up. And Jesus is doing something very special in this moment. This phrase itself, this intended phrase, this intentional phrase begins something. It starts a revolution. And the scriptures compare Adam with Jesus. And Adam, it says, through Adam, sin entered the entirety of humanity. And it changed us forever. You remember what happens? Adam, they decide, they don't know all what they're doing, but they know they're being disobedient. They take the fruit. When they take the fruit, everything gets messed up. They see each other differently. They see themselves differently. The whole world changes. The way everyone views everything from there on out changes. When we're born, we see the world differently. We're messed up because we're born into a sinful humanity. When his kids wake up, They open their eyes and they begin to live their life. And what happens in the first generation? Murder. They take justice into their own hands. Revenge, anger, hatred, murder. This beautiful thing happens. Jesus, he comes in. And he obeys his father down to the last stroke completely perfect in his observance of the law, completely submissive to his father, even to the point where he prays for those who persecute him. 
And as he dies, he prays that the Father would forgive them. And when Jesus rises from the dead, there's this movement. There's this Pentecost. There's this Holy Spirit. There's this reproduction of a new family. And we are called to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Those who were brought into this movement to intercede, priests, on behalf of everyone else around us. And we're brought into this movement. And the first offspring, the first generation after Jesus, are these people who have been following him. Those who want to be his disciple, who deny themselves take up their cross and follow him who lose their life for his sake and and the 12 who were there all of them are going to die the way he does but before any of them die the first one who's going to die is some deacon named Stephen and as he's getting stoned to death what does he say he says father forgive them father forgive them they know not what they do he starts the revolution you know how it works right Martyrdom revolutions. This is where it starts. The big revolution. But this isn't just some guy setting an example in order to make it happen. This is him declaring war from here on out. I will no longer allow sin to pervade humanity in the way that it will take over and get us in this selfish mindset that thinks we're in control. I'm going to start something different that has more power that's stronger, that's bigger. And it's called a revolution of forgiveness. And he invites us to be a part of it. It's a beautiful thing, a gorgeous thing. And, uh, you know, the scriptures tell us very clearly that, that that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be a part of this. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says, <coughs> excuse me, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He starts the ball rolling. I have a hard time saying this name. Socreek, I can't even say it. Sokreeksa, Sokreeksa, Sokreeksa him is the guy's name. He's from Cambodia. And um, if you know about uh, the, the horrible, horrible atrocities that took place in Cambodia, there were these killing fields, you know, where, you know, it was another one of the genocides, yeah, like, like so many genocides that have hit our world. And um, one of them was in Cambodia. This guy was a young guy. Looking around to see who's here. Okay. We don't have young kids here. This is something that's appropriate for adults, but it's probably PG-13. And, um, yeah, anybody under 13 here that's not a baby? I, 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 <laughs> um, so uh, what happens is, okay, so they come to him and him and his dad, and they come and they come at him with machetes, and they just start shredding him, okay? And they're, they're a mess. And they throw him into these mass graves, okay? And then they go back to the village to get the women, to bring him out to the killing field. And in the meantime, he's still with it enough to crawl out of the grave, and he goes and hides in the woods. And he watches as they bring back his mom and his sister, and they murder his mom and his sister in front of him. And then they throw him all in this grave and they bury him all with dirt. And he watches the whole thing happen. Okay? They have no idea he's there. He starts this journey across the jungle. By day, he's trying to avoid the soldiers who are all over the place. At night, he's trying to not get eaten by the tigers and he's sleeping up in the trees. He's bleeding out all over the place trying to heal. Eventually, he makes it to a refugee camp, which starts this horrific journey. He said the refugee camps were almost as bad as everything else. And he says, but when I watched my family die, I swore a blood oath that I would find 
these murderers and I would avenge the death of my family. And so the whole time that he's in the woods and in the jungle and the whole time that he's in these refugee camps, he's sitting there stewing internally, thinking and plotting his revenge. Well, eventually something happens. Eventually what happens is, is that he's taken, uh, somehow he's able to immigrate to, to Canada. And he gets to Canada, and when he gets to Canada, he encounters people who are part of this revolution. He encounters Christians. And these Christians, they don't know about his story or anything, but they lead him to Christ. And he starts a relationship with Jesus Christ. And as he begins to learn about the faith, he begins to understand the mantra of Christian faith. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And as, and as this thing begins to wash over him, he's trying to process what's going on. And, and a healing starts to take place in him. And because he received his own forgiveness and because he understood his own sin and the need for Christ, that meant the releasing of control in his life to receive grace. Which also meant that now over here, he also doesn't have control of his life anymore. That God is in control of his life when it comes to what's happened to him. And he starts to realize, I got to get rid of this blood pact that I have. And so he recants this pact that he made. And then God calls him to go and find these killers again with a new pact. That he would find them and he would forgive them. And he goes on this long journey and it takes forever to actually find the killers. But he does find the killers and they're scared to death because they think that what's going to actually happen is that this is a big setup and he's pretending that. But then they're, they're going to... But it turns out he gets there and he embraces them. He shakes their hand and he says, I release you. I forgive you. Jesus loves you. you know, and, he, and, and he starts this ministry of reconciliation. And this is the picture, the power, the power of the revolution that Jesus begins. But you know what? That doesn't happen just because someone was strong enough to be a forgiver. You know, this isn't about, that's not a story about a forgiver. That's a story about the forgiven. Forgiveness is possible because we've been forgiven. So here's the last phrase. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That one's always confusing to me. I mean, because the, the initial blush is like, well, I got to think about that for a second. Does that mean that the reason I'm being forgiven is because I didn't know what I did? I mean, is that, is that like I'm, my behavior's justified a little bit because there was ignorance? You know, that because of the ignorance, it's okay? Or maybe that's just contextualized. Maybe what he's saying is like, the Roman soldiers don't know what they're doing. And maybe he's just talking about them. And while the Pharisees know exactly what they're doing, these guys don't. But the more I process that and the more I think about it, the more I realize something. That when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, what he's actually saying is, Father, forgive Tim, for he doesn't know what he's doing. Because I don't. Honestly, I don't. Jesus is the only person who really knows what he's doing. The rest of us, we don't. We are lost and confused. We are sheep. We are dumb. We really are. We're not brilliant. We're not smart. We are bad. <laughs> We're bad. Why did I do that? We're messed up. And it is on us. You know? The sin is on us. And it's our fault. But... We don't know what it means. When Adam and Eve take the fruit 
They don't know what all it means. They don't know they're infecting all of humanity for all They don't know what's on the other side of it. They're doing something bad, but they don't understand the breadth of what's happening. All of us are sinners. We don't know what it is that we're actually doing. And I think what Jesus is saying in this moment is what he's saying is forgive them because they didn't realize that what they were doing was separating themselves from the only hope they actually had. They didn't realize that what they were doing was they were walking away from the living God. And while they were rejecting us and while they, that while they were rejecting me, God, like they didn't realize the full ramifications of what was going on. They were deceived and they were led astray. It was still their fault. Our call is to be obedient whether we understand what we're doing or not. And we're not. We're disobedient. It's our fault, but we don't fully understand it. And why would he say that? Because there's still hope that as he forgives us and as he graciously cleanses us, that there still can be reconciliation in this relationship. Because it takes two to tango. We actually do have to re-engage the relationship. And it wouldn't be worth forgiving us if we were just going to reject him anyway. But what he's saying is, they don't realize what all's going on. And if by our grace, we, by the grace of God, we forgive, this is forgiven, then what ends up happening is, is they can now re-engage. And some of them will. Some of them will. They'll choose to engage by the grace of God. So Father, forgive them. Because this wasn't about just a complete and total rejection. This was about them being bad kids, you know? But let them be restored by the grace of God. And then he calls us to be the forgivers. And he says these crazy lines that are like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And this is where it's just really hard because we understand that what he's saying is he's teaching us to pray that we are to be forgiven according to the level that we forgive. And that rocks our American evangelical world. Because what we've understood is unconditional grace. And that's what we believe in. And it's true. But the problem is, is we can't actually receive that grace unless we let go of control. And letting go of control means forgiving. As much as it means forgiving myself and receiving God's forgiveness, it also means forgiving others. The grace of God is about releasing control of my life and having faith in him, trusting him. My response to my sense of pride and control and selfishness is faith. And that faith requires me to practice forgiveness and to receive forgiveness. To do one without the other isn't possible. I can't maintain control of my life and still receive true forgiveness. I must forgive in order to be forgiven. Not because it's work salvation, but because I'm not actually receiving the grace of God if I'm not forgiving other people. The grace is paid by the only one who can actually forgive. 
the only one who can actually be perfect, the only one who can actually be the intercessor. But if I'm unwilling to forgive, then I'm also unwilling to receive the grace of God. And if I think otherwise, I'm self-deceived. This is the deal. There's only one who can forgive, and he declares it from a Roman cross, and he bleeds it out, and it spills onto the pages of Scripture, and it spills out like a manifesto, a declaration of my emancipation because I have been held bondage by selfishness, by bitterness, by shame. And he takes all of it, and he doesn't just say, follow me and be a forgiver. He says, I will transform your heart. You can die with me. And when I rise, my spirit will live in you. And I will continue to offer intercession for you. And I will continue to forgive the world through you. And it won't be you who's forgiving. It will be me who's forgiving. Because you have let go of the control of your life. And you've allowed me to live. And so as we move in this journey of Lent, what we're saying is, less of me, more of you. I want to lose my life for you and find you resurrecting in me. I want to live a resurrected life. I want to look at the world and see my areas of pain and see those relationships that we thought of at the beginning and not look at them and say, God, how can you change my circumstances so I can feel more comfortable? But how can I walk into that moment of tension and that moment of darkness and realize that like the priest that Jesus was when he hung onto the cross, I walk into this moment of tension and I say and I declare like Jesus did from the cross as a priest does walking into the moment of sacrifice I will lay down my life and I will state the purpose and say, I am going to invade this world of darkness with light by saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. May it be so for all of us. Let's pray.